Well, obviously I'm not wearing red robes. And, uh... <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> this is my chair. This <laughs> that's very sweet. Uh, oh, that's sweet. Thank you. <laughs> that's my cheering section. You know, they're not—they're not—they're not showing you that they've got numbers up here for later. You know, depending on how I do it. Right? You know. Yeah. So, Gishi um, Michael is in India this week, and. Uh, can't teach class and he felt that it's better to have someone teach it rather than it not get taught at all. So that's me. So um, please don't compare me too much. <laughs> not wearing robes and uh, I'm not as old and well studied, but hopefully uh, be able to get a little information that's useful to you. Um, anyway, this is the second half of the refuge class. Geshe Michael taught the first half of the refuge class. Um, last time. So he covered uh, refuge in Bodhicitta. I've even gotten Tibetan transparencies here for you guys, so I'm afraid you're not going to be able to escape that. Um, he taught refuge in Bodhicitta last time, the objects of refuge, etc., and uh, generating Bodhicitta. This class is on nirvana and emptiness and proofs of emptiness. Really? Uh, they tell me you were supposed to cover that in the discussion group. Did your discussion group leader? Did you? Yeah. Oh, so you would like to cover the five kinds of refuge briefly? Is that the is that the <laughs> the request? Well. <laughs> All right. Well, I didn't study that part, so I don't mind to do it if you don't mind me referring to my notes. Okay. <laughs> Uh, basically, in Buddhism, all this stuff, nirvana, woo, nirvana, refuge, emptiness, there are many, many, many different ways to slice and dice all this stuff. You know, there are, and when we do emptiness tonight, there are many, many, many different proofs of emptiness, and we're going to cover one proof of emptiness tonight, one way to prove emptiness, and that it's valid. Uh, there are many, many, many different ways to subdivide bodhicitta and to categorize bodhicitta and classify bodhicitta. Uh, and the same is true of refuge, was it? Is that the question? What, what particular division of refuge were you after? The five, the, the five flavors of refuge? Well, <laughs> since that just doesn't come to me off the top of my head, <laughs> let's see if I ever learned it. Um, yeah, there are five, five divisions of Buddhist refuge. Is that what perhaps you'd be referring to? We'll try it. I mean, that's, that's the primary thing that Geshe Michael taught when he originally taught the course. Um, they're the, the normal three, the normal three scopes, lower, medium, and Mahayana scope, right? Are you all familiar with those? He covered those, I believe, right? And then the last two uh, would be result refuge and causal refuge. Those are the five divisions of refuge, right? So people of the lowest scope are going for refuge to avoid their suffering rebirths, they're going for refuge to avoid being reborn in the hells or some other lower realm of existence. Uh, people with a middle refuge, a middle capacity, a middle motivation, uh, are going for refuge to the three jewels or to something uh, for this 
in Buddhist refuge, it's to the three jewels, or going for refuge to avoid uh, a suffering rebirth of any kind. They want to get out of exist, suffering existence altogether, including the higher realms, the, the uh, angelic realms, uh, the, the um, form and formless realms. So people of middle, middle scope don't ever want to be reborn again. They want to attain uh, nirvana. They want to escape all suffering themselves. Right? And then people of the highest motivation, the highest capacity, uh, is called Mahayana motivation. Those people want to escape suffering just like the people on the middle path but they also want to extend that to everyone else. They want to escape suffering themselves forever and then they want to lead everyone else uh, to uh, the end of suffering. So that's the, the third classification of refuge. The other two classifications of refuge are cause refuge and result refuge. Okay? In result refuge, you're going, to re- you're going for refuge to your own future state of enlightenment. You're taking refuge in your own future Buddhahood. You're saying, you know, the thing that's going to protect me, the thing that's going to help me is becoming a Buddha. And therefore, I go for refuge to my future Buddhahood. I am, I am placing my hopes in. I am counting on, I am depending upon my future Buddhahood to protect me from suffering. That's result refuge. That's the fourth, fourth classification of refuge. Um, the last is uh, cause refuge. Um, that one's a little trickier. Um, you're going for refuge to another person who has a quality in their mind or in their character Um, so you know if someone has seen emptiness for example you're going to refuge in that quality which is established in their mind so you know um, you might go for refuge uh, to a particular teacher because that teacher perhaps you think has seen emptiness. Or you might go for refuge you know, to whatever particular person you're going to go for refuge to because of some quality of attainment or some, some aspect of their mind stream and what, some realization which is in their mind stream. Um, like that. Um, so those are the five divisions, of five types or divisions of refuge. Recap from last time. I'm just going to put this down here. Um, I may need it later. Uh, so tonight, uh, we're going to get into uh, nirvana and what it is and how you get there and why you want to get there. Yeah. I'm sorry? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the question was, uh, is, going to co- is taking cause refuge recommended? Yeah, it's one of the five legitimate divisions of taking refuge in Buddhism. The point being, you want to go to re- for refuge to someone who has a legitimate realization. You want, you know, if you go, normally when you go for refuge, you're going for refuge to someone who has seen emptiness, you know, to someone who has, to the teachings on emptiness, or to someone who has become fully enlightened as a result of seeing emptiness. So, there's no problem with cause refuge in that if you're going for refuge to the Sangha jewel, you know, I mean, that incorporates a form of cause refuge. You know, it's similar in a way. There's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Is it causal because, um, because emptiness is what will cause you to become a Buddha? Is it causal in that way? Um, the question was, is it causal in that way? You know, it's called cause refuge. I don't know if it's considered to be causal refuge. And I'm not enough of a scholar to 
to decipher the linguistics of why it's called cause refuge. So save that for next week. <laughs> um, maybe someone else can answer it. I didn't hear. It's taking refuge in causes for you. So the actual made the statement that uh, Michael uh, taught last time, which means he did teach on this. <laughs> uh, that cause refuge was taking refuge in one of the causes for your enlightenment. You could you could apply it to yourself. You know, if you have in your mind the thing which will cause your enlightenment, the direct perception of emptiness, other realizations, you're going for refuge in yourself, meaning that's a person you're going for refuge in your, to that aspect of re, that realization in your mental continuum and in yourself could be you could be someone else um, but you're going for refuge in the thing that causes enlightenment you know like that so whether it's in you or someone else okay so um, we got I was really uh, I was really surprised how much material there is to cover tonight so uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to run out of things to talk about or if I'm not going to get it done but we're going to give it a try um so, we've talked about already in recapping the three different motivations, the three different scopes, the three different um, levels of Buddhist practitioner. Um, there are five Buddhist paths, right? And, you know, we need to get into what is nirvana, how do you get there, what's the difference between nirvana and Buddhahood. Um, is there a difference between nirvana and Buddhahood? Uh, yes, there is. Uh, what is it? Um, if you are pursuing the five Buddhist paths, um, all right, that's okay. Never mind. I'm just gonna. He says, "Don't do that." Because this already fell off. I have too many wires. I. Uh, all right. He says I'm inferior because Geshe-la does it, and he doesn't have a problem. <laughs> okay, I won't take it personally. Um, so anyway, we've got we've got. Uh, five paths and pursuing those five paths lead to either nirvana or enlightenment uh, depending upon what motivation you have what kind of practitioner you are Um, the five paths the five paths are the paths of accumulation preparation seeing habituation and no more learning now in your spiritual career as a Buddhist you have to progress through these five paths to reach either nirvana or enlightenment and pursuing the five paths will lead to one or the other depending upon what your motivation is if you have the motivation to become free of suffering yourself and yourself only you'll obtain nirvana as a successful practitioner if you have the motivation to uh, become fully enlightened so that you can eliminate everyone else's suffering, you become a Buddha. Um, there's a distinction between nirvana and enlightenment and often it's not made in texts and, and, and the distinctions are blurred and the terminology is important. Um, there's a, there's a, there are important keywords, one of which is fully, when they say, or really. If they say he's fully enlightened or he's really enlightened, that means he attained nirvana with bodhicitta, he's a Buddha. If they say he's enlightened, then they could just be talking about nirvana. You don't know if they're talking about full enlightenment. Okay? So it's an important distinction to be aware of. So as you progress through the five paths um, on each of the different tracks, and this is the lower, middle, 
and the highest path, this being Mahayana, um, you have each of the five paths that you have to progress through. Um, so, first path being the path of uh, accumulation. The names don't necessarily mean what it is. Uh, the path of accumulation, you're cultivating renunciation. Uh, if you're a Mahana practitioner, you're cultivating bodhicitta. Uh, basically, you're accumulating virtue. You are accumulating as much merit, as much positive potential, as much virtue as you can to succeed in your practice later. It's very, very hard just to reach the first path. Uh, how do you know when you reach the first path of renunciation? The definition is, is if unceasingly, day and night, you think of nothing else except being free of suffering, then you've attained the first path. You've stepped onto the first path and you have renunciation. If you're not thinking about it 24 hours a day unceasingly, you don't have renunciation, according to full def- definition. Huh? Sorry? This, yeah, these are the five. I'm just, this is quick shorthand. This would be the five paths. One, two, three, four, five. So, on the lower scope, if you successfully, com- if you successfully proceed through all the five paths, renunciation, um, which is accumulation, uh, preparation, the path of preparation. The path of preparation is preparing to see emptiness directly. That's the second Buddhist path in your spiritual career. Studying intellectually, understanding emptiness, uh, becoming very, very familiar and thoroughly comfortable with all of the different concepts and ideas of emptiness. Okay, that's the second path, the path of preparation. The paths overlap. You're still cultivating renunciation. You're still accumulating merit while you're on the second path. And, you, and you're on the second path prior to um, even attaining full renunciation. Third path is path of seeing. That means the direct perception of emptiness. It only lasts 20 minutes or so. Um, It's the most important uh, accomplishment along this path thus far in that once you see emptiness directly, uh, you're guaranteed to uh, become enlightened within a specific period of time. And as part of the direct perception of emptiness, you see your actual day of enlightenment and you know when it is and how many lives you have left, etc. We're going to talk a lot more about emptiness later. I don't want to go into it too much right now. Uh, So that's the third path is in deep meditation, you you actually, your mind, your mental continuum actually uh, goes to a different realm and has a direct direct perception of emptiness in that realm. Fourth path is the path of habituation. After you have the direct perception of emptiness, you have to use that experience to recondition yourself to behave differently, to live your life differently, to be a different person based upon what you saw and experienced directly in meditation. That's why the direct perception of emptiness doesn't get you enlightened right away. The direct perception of emptiness is important in that it it shows you firsthand key things which you need to know to attain nirvana and become enlightened. But having seen those things, you still got to do the work. And, And that's what happens on this path of habituation. It's just, you know, paying attention and doing the work to get enlightened. Um, And then the last path is the path of no more learning. That's where you become enlightened. Depending on which track you're on, if you're on the lower lower track, uh, then on the last path, you reach nirvana. Uh, If you're on middle middle scope, middle path uh, motivation, if you have a motivation to just be free of suffering yourself forever, um, at that point, whoops, this is the last path. At that point, then you attain nirvana. So here you have nirvana. Here you have nirvana. And on the highest scope, if you have the bodhicitta, mahayana motivation, then when you reach the path of no more learning, then at that point, then you're fully enlightened and you're a Buddha. Um, So, 
the five path, the five um, five steps to your spiritual career will lead to different outcomes based upon your motivation. Okay, and so we're going to be talking about nirvana primarily tonight, and uh, and Buddhahood not so much. Primary difference between nirvana and Buddhahood is that uh, with nirvana you attain a permanent cessation of all suffering, all mental afflictions. You personally reach a state where you are in bliss 24 hours a day, forever. And that's the state that you abide in. Um, you're kind of uh, hanging out in a, in a kind of a nice place. And as we get into this, I have to give you your Tibetan, I'm afraid. There's no escaping it. I personally don't know much Tibetan, but I'll pronounce it and you can write it. <laughs> so, you know, the question at this point is what, is, what is nirvana? You know, what is the real definition of nirvana? Um, being Tibetan Buddhist, we have technical specific definitions of everything, uh, including nirvana. This is it. It's important to realize that with both full enlightenment and nirvana, you've eliminated all suffering for yourself. The only difference is what you're doing after that. With nirvana, you're hanging out in bliss, in sort of a uh, personal blissful space, whereas in Buddhahood, you have that exact same bliss, except you have the extensive activity also while you have that bliss associated with helping all beings. So it's nirvana plus, if you will. Nirvana plus activity. So as you go through the definition here, we have to say this too. We have to do it the, the Geshe Michael way, even though he's not here. Okay? So please say Nundrup, Malupar, Pante, Sosor Tango. Nundrup, Malupar, Pante, Sosor Tango. So Nundrup. Uh, well, correct me if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Go ahead. No, I say Oh, he's saying I'm going too fast. Okay. Do you need a few more minutes? Okay. I'll give you another moment. Okay. The crowd says time to move on, Thomas. <laughs> so, Nundrip uh, uh, is mental affliction. Nundrip is a mental affliction. Nun um, is klesha. Klish. Drip is obstacle. Afflictive obstacles, mental afflictions. A mental affliction is just a thought which bothers you. A thought which upsets your mind. Anything which makes your mind unhappy is a mental affliction. Any, any thought that comes up in your mind which causes you to experience something else other than neutrality or pleasure is a mental affliction. Okay? Mm. Malupar uh, means in their entirety. Pangpe eliminated. Sosora one by one. And Tangok, um, Tang is, is to see, and Gok is a cessation. 
So Sosor Tangok is uh, means the four noble truths, the four Arya truths. The four Arya truths and the four noble truths are the same thing. Uh, it's a sort of uh, vague and inaccurate translation to call it the four noble truths, uh, but it's the one which is caught on and which is common, but it doesn't reflect the real meaning. So this is the technical definition of nirvana. Um, you know, roughly, crudely, don't write this down because it's rough and crude. You know, basically it means as a result of seeing one by one each of the four noble truths, you eliminate in their entirety your mental afflictions. Okay? There's a, there's a, it's in your reading. You don't need to write it down. There's a, there's a more specific definition which you'll need for your homework, uh, which is the permanent cessation in which one has eliminated the mental affliction obstacles in their entirety due to one's individual analysis. Individual analysis? What's that, you ask? <laughs> you should, because it's on your homework. <laughs> Can I say it a little faster? It's in the reading. You don't, need to, you don't need to worry about it. It's in the reading. You want me to repeat it again? The permanent cessation in which one has eliminated the mental affliction obstacles in their entirety slow down okay we've got a lot to cover guys <laughs> due to one's individual analysis <laughs> so that's it the permanent cessation in which one has eliminated the mental affliction obstacles in their entirety due to one's individual analysis which bodes the question what is one's individual analysis Case says it's analyzing the four aria truths one by one, precisely. Basically, to have a direct perception of emptiness, you need to be able to sit in meditation for several hours with single-pointed concentration, shamatha. And based on that, your awareness, your consciousness, your mind stream travels to a higher realm of existence, um, to a different realm, and there has a direct non-conceptual perception of emptiness. We'll talk about emptiness. Emptiness is an absence of something. So it's very hard to describe the absence of something, but we're going to talk about it. Um, there, the, the direct perception of emptiness in deep meditation lasts for a short period of time, 20 minutes perhaps. As you come out of the direct perception of emptiness, you have a sensation of descending. As you come out of the direct perception of emptiness, you have a, an extensive series of realizations which last all day long. Um, immediately after coming, as you come out of emptiness, you have a direct perception of what are called colloquially the Four Noble Truths, better translated as the Four Arya Truths. They should be translated as the Four Arya Truths because Arya means someone who has seen emptiness. Um, in any case, you see um, that everything is suffering, that every single thing in existence in this realm is suffering. Uh, you see the cause of that suffering. So... The cause of that, by the way, is your mental afflictions. Uh, you see that your mental afflictions cause every single instance of suffering in your entire life. You, you perceive that directly. Um, you see the end of suffering, i.e. your full enlightenment. And you see the cause of the end of suffering, which is the path. You see that the path causes the end of your suffering. So you have a complete 
understanding of the nature of this world and what causes you to, which is suffering in every aspect of its existence, which Gisha and Michael talked about in the previous classes. Uh, and then you see the thing which causes you to escape that, to get out of that forever. Um, so those are the four Arya truths. So, and that's what the individual analysis is. It's analyzing the four Arya truths one by one as you come out of the direct perception of emptiness. Okay? Um, yeah. I'm sorry? Is there a Tibetan word for nirvana? It's coming. It's coming. We're not there yet. <laughs> um, but if you'd like, I will give you... No. I'll give it to you in a minute. Uh, it, comes with, it comes with the uh, later, later issue. So, why do you care about seeing emptiness directly? Uh, how does seeing emptiness directly affect your suffering? Um, you know, how does it relate to nirvana? How do you get to nirvana? Um, if nirvana is a permanent cessation of all mental afflictions you have to know what causes mental afflictions and you have to know how to stop causing your mental afflictions and that's the importance of emptiness as a result of seeing emptiness directly you have a pure, clear and direct understanding of what causes your suffering and what causes your mental afflictions which lead to your suffering Okay, that's the value. That's the importance of, of seeing emptiness. That's the importance of understanding emptiness, and that's why you have to do it. Um, basically, the way becoming enlightened works is that you have in your mental continuum a storehouse of imprints, karmic seeds. Um, those karmic seeds, those imprints, were placed by you according to your actions speech and thoughts every deed that you do every word that you speak and every thought which you think causes a subtle imprint and configuration of your mind each time you have a thought it causes your mind to be configured in a particular way on a subtle level those are called karmic seeds karmic imprints subtle imprints so the perception of yourself doing something places an imprint in your mental continuum those those configurations, those imprints in your mind are the very things which turn into an outcome later. Okay? The fact that you saw yourself yelling at someone causes a subtle impression or configuration to be made in your mind which stays there along with all the other trillions and trillions and trillions of impressions and imprints and at some point in the future, various imprints, various seeds come together in a particular way, configure, and result in an outcome. Okay? Every perception that you have is the ripening of those imprints. It is the, the reconfiguration of the imprints in your mind. So, you know, thinking that, you know, I like the sound of, of this fan uh, running in the projector here, is you know about a billion karmic imprints just went off to have that perception and you've got it going on all day long and everything that you experience is the resultant outcome of prior imprints which you placed into your mind earlier on 
Okay? So, so this is how karma works and this is how your life works. If you understand karma, you'll understand that if you yell at someone, you, you place an imprint in your mind, you place a karmic seed in your mind, that karmic seed is stored, it's latent, at some point conducive conditions arise, various configurations, karmic seeds configure, they arise as an experience, they arise as a perception, albeit a pleasurable experience or perception or a painful uh, experience or perception. Hurting other people place imprints in your mind which you will experience later as a painful experience of your own. If you see yourself yelling at someone, it places an imprint in your mind, it, it patterns your mind in such a way that you will have a perception of yourself being yelled at in the future. Okay? That's how reality works. That's how, your, that's how karma works. What does that have to do with nirvana? If you understand how karma works, you will never behave in a way which does anything other than plant karmic seeds in your mind to cause your, your future happiness, your future bliss. If you really understand how karma works, then you would do nothing 24 hours a day except behave in a way, speak in a way, and think in a way to imprint your mind to experience your own personal happiness in the future when those imprints reconfigure and manifest as whatever their outcome is going to be. Okay? So, what is nirvana? What is Buddhahood? Attaining nirvana is reaching a state where you have eliminated all of your negative imprints, all of your negative karmic seeds, and there's nothing left in your mind, in your mental continuum, except virtuous karmic seeds, positive imprints, um, positive uh, potentials, so that no matter what what happens, how shall I say it, no matter what configuration your mind takes, it causes you pleasure, it causes you happiness, it causes you pure bliss. So, to become enlightened or to attain nirvana, you must get rid of all your negative imprints, all of your negative karmic seeds, same thing, uh, and you must do only virtue 24 hours a day, i.e. perceive yourself imprinting your mind to cause your happiness, i.e. by helping other people constantly. So. So, what's emptiness got to do with that? If you understand the way in which things exist, if you understand emptiness, that provides you with the ammunition, that provides you with the fuel and the basis to behave in a way where you can treat people well, where you can treat people virtuously, where when difficult situations arise, rather than reacting in a habitual or compulsive fashion to nail somebody back, you know, you, you check yourself and you do less damage or less negativity than you would have otherwise. And the training, this is, this is of the five paths that we talked about. You know, this is the path of habituation. And again, this goes on earlier, but it goes on in, in a real concerted way after you see emptiness directly. When you see emptiness directly, you know for a fact that every word you say to someone which is unkind will cause your personal suffering very quickly. You know, it's, it's, it's the difference between having someone describe to you how tasty a particular kind of cake is, you know, and, you know, you can say, yeah, that's nice, maybe I'd like to try that cake, you know, maybe I'll go out of my way to have some of that cake, as opposed to tasting that cake and it being your really favorite cake, you know, in which case, you know, you think about that cake a lot and you're very aware of its, you know, <laughs> its importance, you know, and how much out of your way you're going to go to get that cake and, and you know, do things for that cake. <laughs> yeah, Bruce. 
Have a body? We're going to get to that later. The question was, how can one attain nirvana and still have a body? Um, just, I'll tell you briefly, and we'll cover it in more detail later. There are two kinds of nirvana. There's called, there's nir- and again, you know, we're going to divide nirvana a lot of different ways. There's nirvana with remainder, and there's nirvana without remainder. And you can imagine what that is <laughs> until we get to it. Um, so, um, so the same is true of emptiness. And so, you know, love would be another example. You could say, oh, you know, it's really important to be loved. You know, I mean, love is an important thing in life, and you know. It's really, it's, it's good to be loved. But, you know, if you've never been loved, you don't appreciate that. You know, you, you just have some kind of sense of, okay, it's important. You know, maybe I'll try to get some love. Maybe I'll try to love somebody. But, you know, once you've been loved, you know, <laughs> or have loved, it's like, wow, man. <laughs> you know, now I get it. <laughs> so emptiness is the same. You know, you can, you can hear people talk about emptiness all day long. You know, you can go to endless teachings on emptiness. Um, once you have a direct experience of emptiness, like love or your favorite cake, you never forget it. And, and it's, it's completely, um, it's a realization. It's in you that you know the importance of it. You know that you have to pay attention. You know how you have to behave. And, and it's, it's the difference between, you know, um, rocket fuel and, uh, you know, and a, and a match, you know, in terms of how much power and strength it gives you in your practice. That's why you have to have a direct perception of emptiness. If you don't have a direct perception of emptiness, you don't have the power and strength of personal practice to succeed in your practice. You cannot succeed in, in, in the practice of becoming enlightened and attaining nirvana. You cannot succeed in the practice of becoming fully enlightened and attaining nirvana if you do not see emptiness directly. There's not enough rocket fuel to get there. Thinking about it intellectually and thinking, yeah, I'm going to really try to pay attention. You know, I'm going to really pay attention to how I treat people. You can't do it. You cannot be mentally aware often enough throughout the day just based on wanting to, you know. So, so that's the importance of seeing emptiness. That's why you have to see emptiness. Um, you know, one of the main things about seeing emptiness is, is that you stop creating new negative karmic imprints. If you have a direct perception of emptiness, you no longer will do anything where you perceive yourself as harming someone because you know that you will suffer. So that's an important result of seeing emptiness. Okay? And then you spend, you know, the next however many lifetimes or decades, you know, purifying your past negative karmic imprints which you've accumulated. You know, we've had a gazillion previous lives where we've done who knows how many nasty things. Um, and you've got to clean all that up you know, before you can become enlightened because every nasty thought, every non-virtuous thought that you've ever had in the infinite past, you're carrying with you unless it's already ripened upon you as suffering. And the same is true of your speech and your deeds. And you cannot become enlightened and you fully enlightened and you cannot attain nirvana until you have gotten rid of or significantly damaged and destroyed all of those past negativities, all of those past negative deeds. Okay, that's how you become enlightened. That's how that's how you become fully enlightened is by destroying, or having them ripen, <laughs> having all of your negative karmic seeds ripen or destroying them. Much preferable to destroy them rather than having them ripen upon you. Um, so that's the idea. Um, so, which leads to Brooks' question: What? You know, if you become, let's say, let's say you succeed in your practice. Let's say you traverse the five paths, you know. Um, 
you purify all of your negative karmic imprints, all of your past mental imprints. And now you're, you know, here you are, Brooks. You know, you've been doing this a couple of decades. You know, you're advanced on the path. You've seen emptiness directly. Um, you know, you you extremely careful about never doing any negativity or non-virtue. And you get to the point where you no longer have any negative karmic seeds which can ripen. You no longer have any mental afflictions whatsoever. But you're Brooks, man. You got your body. <laughs> what happens to it? <laughs> and this? Yeah. Yeah, you lose it. I mean, eventually you lose it. You don't lose it right away. The karmic... The karma which has ripened into, into this body, you know, the, I'll just keep it simple. The, the karmic seeds which, which ripened and resulted in you being born with this body is still in force. That karma hasn't worn out yet. And until the karmic seeds which gave you this human body wear out, you will have this human body. And it's completely possible and completely the case that people in this room could have attained full enlightenment or nirvana and they'd be sitting around you in the same body they always had, and you never know it. Um, so this leads to the next homework question, which is, what's the difference in this school, which the school we're talking about, the school we're in, by the way, is Ajemika Svatantrika. Um, what's the difference in this school between nirvana with something left over and nirvana with nothing left over? So this answers, Sal, your question of what is the Tibetan for nirvana? It's Nyangde. Yeah, yeah, we're going to do both. So Hlakche. Hmm? Sorry? Oh, sorry, I'm not used to having people repeat after me. <laughs> sorry, say Hlakche. <laughs> Nyangde. Hlakme. <laughs> Nyangde. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so hlak <laughs> Don't say that Hlak means uh, something left over There's something left over Che means uh, having or possessing Young day nirvana Nirvana which has something left over Again, hlak means left over May means nothing Young day nirvana So nirvana with nothing left over So once you attain nirvana, in this life, as a human being, you have something left over, your body. And until that body dies, you have attained nirvana with something left over. When that body, when the karmic seeds for that body have worn out and that body dies, your mind, it's important, your mind, there's no suffering associated with that. Your mind is already in a permanent, ceaseless state of bliss. Once you attain nirvana, you never go back. Okay? Why? Because you realize that you have to do this self-perpetuating behavior which says, I can only treat people well. I can only do virtue. If I ever do anything other than virtue, I'm going to suffer in the future. And once your practice evolves to a certain point, you never will do any non-virtue. And so how could you ever go back to suffering? Because you never would think a thought, have a word, or do a deed to hurt anyone. And therefore, you can never suffer again because you never create the cause to suffer again. And so once you reach a certain level of your spiritual development, you're not going back for that reason. Okay? Um, and that's the idea of seeing emptiness directly. Once you see emptiness directly, you're not going back you know, because of the experience. Yeah? What about creating a tantric body? Question was, what about creating a tantric deity's body? Would that fall in the category of something 
nirvana with something left over. We're going to come to that later in, this, in, the, in the class tonight. There's a question about confusing the open teachings and the secret teachings. <laughs> we can't talk about the secret teachings. <laughs> um, okay. Sorry? Is there a definition? Nirvana with something left over? Nirvana with nothing left over? What they mean, basically, if you, have, if you attain nirvana with something left over, you not only have your physical body, but you have bakchats. Bakchats, also. Bakchats. Well, there's, there's the issue of what do you do with your, net, your past negative karma? Okay? Um, you get rid of it completely or you damage it to the extent where it can never ripen. You know, it's like you can use the analogy of a seed that you're going to plant in the ground. Um, if you damage a seed enough, it, it can never grow into anything. So uh, in your spiritual practice, you, will, you need to either damage all of your negative seeds to the point where they can never ripen into anything or you need to get rid of them completely. Um, so once you have nirvana with something left over, you do still have bakchaks. Bakchaks are imprints. Bakchaks are predispositions to behave a certain way, to do a certain thing. Okay? A bakchak is a subtle potential. So we're going to talk about the gakcha later. Don't confuse it with the bakcha. Yeah. I wasn't completely precise when I said that. <laughs> Attaining nirvana is... What's the correct tef- technical definition? The permanent cessation in which one has eliminated mental affliction obstacles in their entirety due to the individual analysis. You never, ever have a mental affliction again. You never, ever have a karmic seed ripen which can cause any negative perception. Okay? So, attaining nirvana means that you no longer have karmic seeds which can do you, do you harm. Um, initially, you have bakchaks which are subtle predispositions. Okay? They're kind of residues, if you will. Um, latent predispositions to, to repeat old negative habits and patterns. Okay? Mm, so... Mm-hmm. Yep. Can't hear you? Who's trying to destroy what? Um, is it... Who is, who is destroying the negative karmic seeds? Is that the question? You are. I am. Each individual is. Uh, each person has their own unique personal mental continuum, their mind stream. It's called in Buddhism. So each individual's mind stream, um, which we tend to associate with the brain, um, contains all of your karmic imprints. So each individual must deal with their own mind in the contents of their own mind. So each individual is trying to clean up their own mind, basically, like that. 
How can how can a corrupt yeah how can a corrupt mind clean up its own corruption? Like that? This question? Um, it's very hard. And that's why you have to study. And and it's a pure force of will. It's a pure strength of will situation. You know, you have to have the intellect, you have to have the the effort, you know, you have to have the, the training, you have to have someone helping you change your behavior. You know, how do you change your behavior? Say again? So, so if I understand your your point, So if I understand your question, your point, your point in question is, is, well, there's who's really there and what's trying to get what of what and if you get rid of it, what's really left? Something to that effect, right? So we're gonna, when we talk about emptiness, we're going to come to that, okay? That's, part of, that's, that's coming later. We're going to cover it. Um, it's an important point. It's an important question because you have to understand what you're trying to get rid of and what's really there and what's not really there and what's left. You know, all those are very important points and we're going to do it. Um, so we're going to finish with nirvana. Um, there's a type of nirvana. There are many ways to divide nirvana. There's a type of nirvana called nirvana which does not stay. And I'm going to give you the Tibetan once again. Mm, don't know. I would presume that this whole school is uh, Magimika Svatantrika, but not being a scriptural scholar, I can't say. <laughs> One thing I want to just, uh, you know, we're t- when we're talking about nirvana with something left over, nirvana with nothing left over, it's important in a way to understand um, who you are and what you're made of. You know, this relates back to your question of what's there and what's not there. According to Buddhism, there are five heaps or five piles of stuff that make up a person. Okay? And you have to understand what you're made up of and, uh, you know, Buddhism does that. So, you know, the five heaps, Buddhism divides you and who you are into five piles of stuff. It takes you and who you are and just breaks it up into parts. It says, okay, all these parts go in this pile, all these parts go in this pile. Those are the five heaps. Okay? So the first, and this doesn't have anything to do with that. We're going back. Um, so the first heap is your physical body. You know, just physical stuff, arms, legs, skin, etc. Um, the second heap or grouping of you and your stuff is feelings, your sensory and emotional feelings. So feelings are the second heap. You know, basically um, defined as pleasure, pain, and neutrality. You know, the sensing of pleasure and the experiencing of pleasure, pain, and neutrality. That's what feeling is basically defined as. Um, the ability to, to discriminate. Discrimination is the third heap. Basically, in Buddhism, discrimination means the capacity to tell the difference between two things. That's blue, that's red. That's your discrimination. That's good, that's bad. That's your discrimination. Okay? Um, that's your third heap. Um, uh, there's uh, another heap which is called the main mind. Uh, in Buddhism, there are many, many, many levels of mind. Um, basically, the main mind refers to your consciousness.
That was the fifth one. I skipped the fourth one. I'm going to go back to the fourth one. Um, in Buddhism, they define six types of consciousness. There is a consciousness associated with each of your five sense- senses. There is a consciousness which perceives visually. There is visual consciousness, it's called. There is consciousness which perceives audio, auditory consciousness, etc. for all the five senses. And then there's mental consciousness. Okay? So those are the six consciousnesses which make up the main mind in Buddhism which are divided into a heap. So and then there's another heap which they just say everything that's left throat in the other pile. That's the fourth heap. Okay? So those are the five breakdowns of you and how you get uh, divided up. Um, if you notice in that, in Buddhism there are 46 different mental functions. The mind is broken up and the way to which the mind is broken up is divided into 46 different things. Two of the things in those heaps, feeling and discrimination, are mental functions. Okay? And they split them out of the other 46 and, and put them alone and said, this is important. You know, Pay attention to this one aspect of the mind, its ability to discriminate. Pay attention to this second aspect of the mind, its ability to feel things. Okay? Yeah. I don't know. I, really, I have 46, but if you say 52, I won't contest you. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> um, so anyway, you know, that Buddhism breaks those two out because it says these two mental functions are the source of all suffering. These two mental functions cause all of your suffering and keep you in a suffering existence. You discriminate, you say, I like that or I don't like that. You know, you feel good or you feel bad and that hooks up with discrimination and that causes you to act. You know, you say, this feels really good and I like that and I'm going to, therefore you do whatever you do. You know, so those two mental functions are separated from the 46 or 52 or there's probably lots of different ways to subdivide that too. Separated from all the other mental functions because they're the ones that do most of the damage. Okay? Is your feeling and discrimination. So those are two of the five heaps and they're broken out for that reason. Okay? So we'll, come, we'll, uh, we'll elaborate on that more when we get into to emptiness. Um, going back to Minepe, say Minepe, Nyangde. Minepe, Nyangde. Nyangde again is Nirvana. Mi is not. Nepe is to stay. So there's a kind of nirvana which is called nirvana which does not stay. What does it mean? Uh, It means that when you attain that nirvana, it's a type of nirvana. How shall I say it? Nirvana which does not stay refers to a nirvana where you neither stay in the extreme of suffering or in the extreme of peace. The extreme of peace is nirvana as we've described it. You're blissed out 24 hours a day forever. The extreme of suffering is where we are. So, um, have uh, sita, which means um, C is, some, is uh, short for samsara, um, wheel of samsara. Uh, Ta is extreme or edge. So sita is the extreme of samsara. Say sita. Sita. And then we have shita. 
she is peace and ta is extreme to the extreme of peace so nirvana which does not stay means the being which attains this nirvana is neither staying in suffering and neither abiding in their own personal peace means someone who is fully enlightened or totally enlightened as opposed to just enlightened which we'd be lucky to get there but in any case fully enlightened is better Uh, it's the nirvana of a Buddha a Buddha also attains nirvana just goes a little further okay so how do you sita is uh, the extreme of samsara and chitta is the extreme of peace I've been here. There's there are many different types of nirvana. This particular is a particular type of nirvana called the nirvana which does not stay, and that's the nirvana that a Buddha abides in, attains. Why is it called? Why is it called what? Okay. So then then we get into how do you attain nirvana? How do you get there? And there are three main. A question? Yeah. Why is it called that? Because you're not. These Buddhists, you know, they like to come up with divisions, you know? So they just, you know, there are six different ways they divided nirvana. And we're just talking about one of them. And you're reading, I'll, I should probably go through it, you know, before we're finished. And you're reading, it says, you know, here's one division of nirvana, here's another division of nirvana, etc. This particular division of nirvana, they're saying, this is their nirvana. This is called the nirvana which does not stay. And it just means a person who attains this nirvana is neither staying in the extreme of peace and, not, and neither staying in the extreme of suffering. A fully enlightened Buddha. Because they are attaining nirvana and then going on to help all beings. They're not just hanging out in a personal nirvana. Like that. Okay? So how do you get to nirvana? Um, in fact, that's a homework question. Describe the three main parts of the methods for achieving nirvana. Um, basically, what you've got to do, the three steps. The first step is you have to train in wisdom realizing emptiness. You have to train yourself in emptiness, in the path, in the study, in the we- wisdom realizing emptiness. That's the first step. The first thing you must do to move towards attaining nirvana. It's called training in the wisdom that realizes nothing has any nature of its own. What does that mean? We'll get to it. The second element, the second thing you need to do to get to nirvana is undertake the first training under the influence of very finely tuned morality and concentration, meaning meditation. You have to have extremely good ethical behavior and you have to have extremely good concentrative ability, meditative ability. Okay? Why? Because if you don't have really good ethics, you're going to be doing a lot of non-virtue and that's counterproductive to attaining nirvana. Nirvana is the elimination of all of the imprints caused by doing non-virtue. Huh? 
question was, did I say after you see emptiness directly, you cannot generate any new negativity? Um, not having seen emptiness, I don't know. Um, but I would say that the amount of, I mean, just logically, the amount of negativity that you would collect, if any, having seen emptiness would be minimal compared to the amount of negativity that you're cleaning up and purifying and getting rid of, you know? I can't, I can't tell you definitively after you have a direct perception of emptiness, you'll never do one non-virtue ever again of any type. You know, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, you wouldn't. I mean, you, you would know. I mean, it would be like, you know, sticking yourself with a pin in the arm. You know what it's going to feel like. Could you do it? Yeah. Would you do it? No. You know, <laughs> not usually. <laughs> yeah. The second is uh, undertaking the training of wisdom under the influence of finely tuned morality and concentration. You have to master morality and concentration. Again, it's just, if you understand how you attain nirvana, it's, it's obvious, you know. How can you attain nirvana if you can't be in deep meditation and if you're accumulating negative mental imprints, which are, you know, you're going in the wrong direction. You know, you're heading that way and you want to be heading that way. You know, it's just counterproductive. So that's the second thing that you have to do. The third thing you have to do is get used to what you saw while you were in emptiness. You have to become extremely familiar with the realizations you gained during the direct perception of emptiness. Okay? While you were on the third path, the path of seeing, you had certain realizations. You have to become very familiar with those. You have to become extremely um, comfortable with those. And they have to be an integral part of you and your life and who you are. Okay? Yeah, so the question is, well, when you see emptiness directly, there's actually something there. There's some knowledge. There's some insight. There's something, there's something there. It's not just voidness. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a realization. It's the absence of something, but there is something there. Okay? And we should probably talk about that. <laughs> In fact, we'll, we'll get into it now. Um, next question on the homework. Why is it important to identify the object that we deny? This gets into the whole emptiness thing. Um, emptiness is the absence of something. Okay? Emptiness is a negative state. I'm sorry? Did I finish? Wait. Did I finish with the path to nirvana? Yeah, there were three steps. Three, three elements that have to be there uh, to reach nirvana. The first is you have to become a master of the extraordinary training of wisdom. Second is, is you have to do so, pursue that, under the influence of finely tuned morality and concentration. That's the second. And the third is, is you have to become extremely familiar with the realizations you gained during the direct perception of emptiness and rehabituate yourself based on that. You have to change your habits of living and being based on your realizations that you gained while you're in, in the direct perception of emptiness. Okay? Is this the five paths? No, no, this is totally different. This is something... I'm sorry? There are, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. All three of these are in relationship to emptiness. See, the five paths you have, renunciate, the first path is accumulation, renunciation, generating renunciation in bodhicitta, and accumulating virtue. That's the first, you know, not emptiness per se. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I mean, basically, when you come right down to it, 
once you really understand Buddhism, all of Buddhism is about emptiness in one way or another. So, emptiness, karma, virtue, and non-virtue. Once you get down to the essential nut of Buddhism, you know, it's emptiness and it's karma. And that's the long and the short of it. And everything is framed within that context. Yeah, slicing and dicing in different ways. Yeah. 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 Seeing emptiness. Question is, is seeing emptiness directly nirvana? No, it's not. Seeing emptiness directly is a meditative experience. That's, that's all it is. Seeing emptiness directly is a realization as a result of your meditative experience. You gain realization. You gain a series of realizations as a result of the direct perception of emptiness. It's not nirvana. Nirvana is, as we defined initially, a state where you have a permanent cessation of all mental afflictions. Okay? Once you attain nirvana, you no longer ever have a thought in your mind or any experience which is unpleasant to you. Now, when you're in the direct perception of emptiness, you just, you know, you're a normal guy, I'm a normal guy, we are great meditators, we studied wonderfully, you know, we go into retreat, we sit down, we meditate on emptiness, we have a direct perception of emptiness. We come out of emptiness, meditation, we come out of retreat, we're walking down the street, you know, get hit by a truck, you know, break a leg. It's fine, feasible, no problem. Um, because, just, be- just because you saw emptiness directly, that did not destroy all of your past negative karma. And that's the key to it, you know, that's the key to the difference. Everything in Buddhism is about karma, you know, and karma is the foundation upon which everything is based. And if you understand that, then you can frame everything within that context. If you have got negative karma in your mental continuum, you'll suffer when it ripens, regardless of whether you've gained this realization or that realization or the other realization. I'm sorry? So the question is, is nirvana a certainty after you have the direct perception of emptiness? Yes. That's one of the... That's one of the... Um, four Arya truths. You have the truth of cessation of suffering. You have a direct perception. As you come out of emptiness meditation, you have a direct experiential perception of your enlightenment and how long it takes and that it's one lifetime away or three lifetimes away or seven lifetimes away. So you know for a fact that you, you it's called being a stream, a stream enterer. After you have seen emptiness directly, you are a stream enterer. Okay? You are an Arya. An Arya is a stream enterer. They're called a stream enterer because you are str- you're, on, you know, you're, you're flowing. You know? You're on the conveyor belt on your way out and there's no stopping you. No way out. You know? After you have the direct perception of emptiness, you can't be stopped. No way. Impossible. So you must become enlightened or fully enlightened, one or the other. You know, attain nirvana or Buddhahood. Right? Like that. How long it takes is another matter. It, and that's just a question of how long it takes you to get rid of all of your ne- past negative karmic bokchaks and imprints which are imprinted in your mental continuum. You know, maybe you can do it fast, maybe you'll do it slow. That'll determine how long it takes you to attain nirvana because nirvana is the state of not having any more negative karmic seeds ripen in your mind ever. Right? Seeing emptiness directly does not prevent all of the negative karmic seeds in your mind stream from ripening. It doesn't destroy them. It doesn't get rid of them. It doesn't cripple them. All it does is give you the, the, the ability to stop doing non-virtue based on understanding that you're hurting yourself when you do non-virtue. Okay. It's like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There, mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, yeah. So, so the question, the, the pointer question was: Is once you see emptiness directly, doesn't that cut off a lot of wrong views? Yeah, that's the whole point of seeing emptiness directly. Once you see emptiness directly, you know you are a different type of being. You know, there are two class, classes of beings in Buddhism: um, those who are like children and those who have seen emptiness directly. If you haven't seen emptiness directly, you're considered to be childlike in Buddhism. Um, it's just, it's just that cut and dry. Once you see emptiness directly, you're, it cuts the root of ignorance. You know. All of the wrong, all of the wrong views, you know, that you have, you cut the root of that. You know, every thought that you have, every perception that you have, for your entire life is wrong. Every view that you have, now, today, all week long, every year of your life thus far, has been completely wrong, and it won't change at all, ever, until you see emptiness directly. You know, it might get a little better, it might get a little worse, but fundamentally, it's wrong. So once you have a direct perception of emptiness, you know you cut the root of ignorance, and all of your wrong views are severely crippled. Yeah. And then you just clean them up the rest of the way after. Yeah. Without one and two. Oh, can you see emptiness without wanting to? Was that the question? Yeah. Yeah. You can't see emptiness directly unless you're an advanced meditator. You can't be an advanced meditator unless you have extremely clean morality. That's how it works. Um, so yeah, you have to have the first the first elements also. Um, yeah. Uh, the point point was that well, there are stories of people who got given a picture of the Buddha and the next day they got enlightened. I don't know. Something's a story. I don't know how it fits in. <laughs> well, we got to move on. Uh, got to keep it moving. Got to keep it moving. Um, so the gacha, gacha, very important concept. This is the object which we deny. Okay. This is what's not there. This is what we think is there, but it isn't really there. It doesn't even exist. And we think everything exists as a gacha. So as I started to say before, emptiness is the absence of something. It's what's not there. Okay? Emptiness is a negative state. You know, people try to talk about it in positive terms. What is emptiness? Describe it in a positive way. Can't be done. Emptiness is what's not there. You can't describe what's not there with positive terms. Okay? So, having said that, we'll describe it. <laughs> um, so, we have to define what we're negating. To understand what's not there, we have to understand what we're going to negate. Okay? And the gacha is what we're going to negate. Mm. It's like, it's like um, you know, a speaker, a stereo speaker. If you're going to try to prove to somebody that there's not a stereo speaker in this room, you have to know what a stereo speaker is and what it looks like. Otherwise, there's absolutely no way for you to prove that it's not in this room. Okay? Same thing with reality. Same thing with emptiness. Same thing with the gotcha. You have to be able to prove... Let me say it differently. You have to, be, you have to know what it is you're going to prove isn't there. You get that? You have to know 
what it is that you're going to prove isn't there. Okay? So, that's the gacha. A gacha means a self-existent thing. It means a thing which exists by itself. Something which exists from its own side. Something, something which is radiating its own nature from itself, independent of anything else. Something which is uncaused, something which doesn't have any parts, something which exists independent of anyone's perceiving it or projecting onto it. That's the gotcha. Okay? If it existed, which it doesn't, it would exist from its own side. Okay? If a six-foot-tall bunny rabbit with three ears existed in this room, you know, that's what it would be. So, question on your homework says, why is it important to identify the object we deny? Because if you don't know what a self-existent object looks like, you can't prove it's not there. The point of emptiness is, is, we're go- is that we're going to identify and prove what, what is not there. We're going to show that things are empty. What does that mean? It means that they don't have a nature from their own side. They don't have an identity from their own side. Okay? Things are empty of self-existent nature. Okay? We're going to prove that there is no self-existent nature. Things are empty. There's an absence of a self-existent nature to every single thing. Okay? Hopefully that makes sense. So a self-existent object is the object which we, which we are going to deny, the gotcha. Alrighty? Mm. Got means deny. I took it off already, but ja means the object. Okay? So it's important to understand this notion of um, how we perceive things. Normally we perceive that I, John, am standing here radiating my identity to you and you just happen to notice what I'm putting out you know I mean that's basically how we relate to the world you know these chairs are putting out chairness a chair identity a chair aspect and I'm just taking it in you know I'm just looking around me taking in all the stuff that's being radiated to me through my senses okay I got my five senses my six senses they're taking in they're taking in sights and sounds and I'm just registering what is being given to me from outside of me, okay? That's a self-existent view of things. You think that things really exist outside of you and you're just taking it all in, you know? You think that things really exist from their own side, right? They don't. We deny that anything exists from its own side, okay? Independently of anything else. When we say that a thing is not self-existent, we mean it does not exist independently of anything else, okay? It it does exist in dependence on other things. So this is an important distinction. Emptiness is a negative state. We're not saying there's nothing there. There is something there. It just doesn't exist in the way you think it does. Okay? How does it exist? That's called dependent origination. Dependent origination is the positive way in which you describe how things do exist. Okay? Things exist in dependence on stuff. 
Things exist in dependence on having parts. Things exist in dependence on being caused, having causes. And things exist in dependence upon you conceiving of them and conceptualizing them the way that you do. That's how things do exist. Okay? Things do not exist from their own side radiating their nature. Got it? Great. Moving on. <laughs> Piece of cake, see? <laughs> this is really easy stuff. Now, why do you care about all this, you know? I mean, why do you care about emptiness? Why do you care about, you know, the way things exist, the blah, blah, blah? Because, oh, Sal's saying go faster. Uh-oh, okay. Um, because every negative emotion that you've ever had is caused by you reacting to something as if it existed from its own side. You think the guy that's yelling at you exists from his own side, okay? It, he doesn't. He exists in dependence upon causes, parts, and conceptualizations. So, once you understand this, we gotta, I'm going to speed up because we do have to move. Uh, once you understand this, then you stop behaving the way you normally do. Then you stop doing negativity. You have a basis to no longer react when somebody smacks you, when somebody mistreats you, when someone, you know, when you have, when someone pushes your buttons, you now have a tool and a mechanism to respond differently. You now have a basis to interpret it differently and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, this isn't really the way I think it is, you know, this is not the scenario, you know, as I, I want to say this, I've always reacted to this scenario in this way and it's based on ignorance and I have to react to this scenario differently, i.e., I have to stop myself from doing non-virtue and I have to react at least at best in a virtuous way and at least in a neutral way like that so that's why you've got to understand emptiness okay and there's an example which is given in the scriptures of a magic show which is on your homework it's, a, it's an old scriptural example but you know it's on the homework so what are we going to do um, there it is <laughs> Okay, they use a magician, a piece of wood, a crowd of spectators, some magic dust, etc. Um, there are different classes of beings. Uh, as I started to say before, beings who have never seen emptiness directly, that's one class of being. Beings who have had a direct perception of emptiness, that's another class of being. Um, this magic show is, is given as an example of different classes of beings and how they understand emptiness, how they create how they relate to reality, how they interact with their reality. Okay? So, Soso Kewo, say Soso. Kewo. Soso Kewo. Soso is ordinary. Kewo is person. Ordinary person. That's us, mostly. Probably. Um, there's the next one. The next kind of person. Say Jeto, Jangsem, Pakpa, Jeto, Jangsem, Pakpa. J means after, Tok means got. Jangsem is um, bodhicitta or bodhisattva. Pakpa is an Arya. Arya means someone who has seen emptiness. As opposed to an arhant, an arhant is someone who has attained nirvana. An arya becomes an arhant. 
if you care. It's just confuse you otherwise. I'm sorry? Re- repeat the meaning. Um, J is after. Tot is got. So, you know, it's an Arya, um, Bodhisattva, after. It's an, you know, an Arya after he's seen emptiness. This refers to someone who has seen emptiness but is no longer seeing emptiness. They've come out. You only see emptiness in deep meditation. So this is referring to someone who has had the direct perception of emptiness and they've come out of the meditative experience and now they're in their normal perceptual state. Okay. Basically, the example of the magician is that there's a magician. Um, he gathers a crowd around, kind of like in Washington Square Park. Um, you know, he says, look, take a look at this stick. You know, he, he throws the stick on the ground. Um, he utters a magic incantation. He throws some magic dust and the crowd that's gathered around sees the stick turn into a horse. Okay. Now, some people wander up, also like Washington Square Park, um, and come after he's done his incantation and after the magic dust was thrown and they just see a stick. You know, everybody's going, wow, look at the horse, it's amazing. And they're going, what are you talking about? It's just a stick. Okay? So you have three different things going on in this example. You have the magician who threw a stick on the ground. He knows it's a stick, but he got the magic dust in his eyes and he's also seeing it as a horse. Okay? That's cor- that is a, um, an example of correlation to an Arya Bodhisattva, this person, who has seen emptiness directly, uh, but when they're out of the meditation, they, um, you know, they see things normally. They see things deceptively. They are fooled by reality. Okay? Um, a soso kewo, an ordinary person, um, you know, they only see things as a horse. You know, they're like, wow, it turned into a horse, you know. It's, it's a horse and they don't know any difference. Basically, it's how we look at the world. We think things are self-existent. We don't know any different. We don't know that there's really something else hidden behind the horse, as it were. Um, the third type of person, these are the people who came up last and after the magic dust was thrown. Say Tongi, Numsum, Du, Tokpe Lopa. Tongi, Numsum, Du, Tokpe Lopa. So Tongi is emptiness. Mm, sorry. Numsum is directly. Directly. Hmm? First one. Tongni? Uh, Tongni is emptiness. Tokpe is seeing it. And uh, Lokpa is uh, a practitioner, uh, a non Buddha practitioner, someone who's still on the first four paths. Sal really wants some snacks. He's saying we got to have a break now. <laughs> yeah, it's going to hold out just for a few more minutes, Sal. We're coming. I'm sorry. Uh, Lopa is a practitioner, non-Buddha. It's uh, it specifically refers to someone who's not a Buddha, a practitioner who's not a Buddha. So what this means is this is a a practitioner 
who has seen emptiness directly. Okay. And is in this, you know, ha- and is seeing the emptiness of things. So the example of, of the person with the stick. Um, so the three types of people in the example. You have the spectator who see a horse, who sees a horse and believes there's a horse, right? Um, you have the people who see a horse, but they know it's not real. They know it's just a spell, right? And you have the latecomers who don't see a horse and they don't believe there's a horse there, okay? So those are the three different ways that people see things. And it's, I don't want to spend too much time on it. It's just an analogy for the three different types of beings, the three different time, ways in which we see, we see the world, okay? Mm-hmm. The one is having one is is out of the direct perception of emptiness and is now seeing things as deceptive reality again. They know that that things are empty, but they can't help themselves. I know that this projector is an assembly is an is a mental construct of my mind, but I still see it as a projector and relate to it as if it's coming if it's out there and it's existing independent of my mental conceptualization. But are you an Arya then? No, but <laughs> yeah, with that person, in that if if you've had a if you've had a direct perception of emptiness, you're an aria. It doesn't mean that you are seeing the emptiness of things at, when you're outside of emptiness. When you have the direct perception of emptiness, it's only while you're in meditation for that period of time. When you come out of meditation, you're not seeing emptiness anymore. Uh, the third is not a Buddha. It specifically uh, refers to a, a practitioner on the first four paths who's not a Buddha. Well, this is saying if there was a, an Arya who was in a direct perception of emptiness, that they would be seeing it this way. Don't spend too much time on it. Don't worry about it too much. I'm going to get myself in trouble here. You guys are going to nail me down. All right, okay. Let me just review this for a moment, please, okay? <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what the answer key says. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Says, you know, the third one is the third one is someone who is not a Buddha, who has had a direct perception of emptiness. I mean, let's do let's do it this way. If a person could have a direct perception of emptiness outside of meditation, that would be this person, number three. Okay, how's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They would see both realities together, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, correct. Yeah, these guys are just saying you can't see emptiness. You can't see something as really being empty out of, empty, out of meditation. That's their point. They're right. You got it. Busted. Yeah. There you go. Bob is a resident Tibetan. Yeah, Bob is resident Tibetan expert saying that the Tibetan words actually mean in the, in the direct perception of emptiness. While in the direct perception of emptiness. Okay. There's, um, there's a really a bear of a question here um, on the homework. And this is where we get into proving emptiness and, and that things are empty. And uh, I want to I do the discussion group because Sal is like really flipping out back there. Um, so, <laughs> so we'll do a discussion group and then we'll come back to... Um, We'll come back to the last couple of points, okay, after the discussion group and do it after. So, it's, uh, what time is it now? It's 10 to 9, so let's do a break till 9. It's 8.56, so 
Okay, so let's do a break for five or ten minutes. Do discussion group till 9.30 and then we'll finish up after that. All the questions we did so far. <laughs> Oh, thank you. That's sweet. We're back in action. So we got a uh, heavy proof of emptiness to cover. Um, so it's a good thing we got a bulb. We got two bulbs. Um, so we're left with the really hard stuff now, unfortunately. Uh, and I hate to do this to you guys, but we're going to have to really cruise uh, to be able to get it in. So we shall. Um, I'm having trouble with my cylinder. Yeah, it's emptiness, right? There's an empty... Mm, that's clever. <laughs> so, you know, how do we know about this emptiness thing, you know? Um, how do you prove that uh, things are empty? What's it mean? Um, i got to repeat again. Things do exist. They don't exist in the way in which you think they exist. There is something there. It's not what you think is there. Okay? That's the point of emptiness. The point of emptiness is things are empty of existing in the way in which you think they do. All right? Oh, I'm not supposed to be writing it yet. <laughs> Take that off. Um, I'll give you an advanced screening either way. Um, so what we're going to do now is uh, a logical proof, which unfortunately means you've got to understand some logic. You know, I'm going to take this off. You don't need it right now. Um, so there are many proofs of emptiness. There are many ways to prove emptiness. Uh, the proof we're going to do is called the emptiness of one or many. Uh, there's a sliver of diamond. There's a king of reasonings. There are many, many different proofs. Um, so you have to understand a little bit of logic to be able to do this. Basically, the format of a logical statement is has three or four components. First of which is consider whatever. Second is um, you want to assert some characteristic about whatever your subject is. So um, it's a characteristic. You assert. Okay, and then uh, you have a supporting reason and then an example so you know for example take the sun consider the sun and then you want to assert some characteristic about the sun Um, you're going to say the sun is not blue okay and why because it's yellow In this case, we don't need an example. Um, Sometimes there is one. So there are a couple of things you need to know about the logical connections and the logical progressions. Um, When you're doing logical proof, the person that you're giving logical proof to has to accept each of the elements independently already. You have to use things which people already understand and and accept in a logical proof. You can't give them arguments which they don't accept. So the person has to accept that the sun is yellow, They have to accept that yellow and blue can't be there simultaneously. Um, 
and then you basically tie it together for them in your, in your logical statement. That's the purpose of logic. There has to be a relationship. There has to be certain relationships fulfilled between points one, two, and three. And I'm going to look at my notes because I don't have this memorized. So, number one and number three have to connect accurately. Consider the sun, it's yellow. That has to be a valid statement. Okay? So, point number one and point number three always have to accurately connect. Point number three and point number two have to hold, they have to be valid. Okay? Because it's yellow, it's not blue. That statement also has to be true. Three and two. If three holds, then two must hold. And then the next relationship that has to be true is that if you negate two, it also negates three. So this is classic logic, logical statement of any proof of any argument. It applies to any logical proof you're going to do any time. So that's the basics. That's the basis. Okay. So now we're going to do a really... Uh, fast proof that everything is empty in the universe. All right. Say it again. If you negate what did I say? Yeah. If it's blue, then it's not yellow. If you negate one, then it's the other. The, the relationship holds. It doesn't have to be accurate. It doesn't have to be true. Just the logic has to hold, you see. It doesn't have to be a true statement, but the logical connection has to be valid, you see. It can't be yellow and blue together. So if it's yellow, it's not blue. If it's blue, it's not yellow. Yeah, yeah you're going to double negatives. It gets a little confusing. So we got to cruise. So I'm afraid we have to keep the questions to a minimum and just try to soak it up, okay? Um, good luck. So, so it's the, yeah. So it's the proof. It's um, it's called the proof of one or many, and the, the the subject or the basis of the proof is called the three knowledges. Don't worry about what the three knowledges are. Okay, just that's the basis of the proof. The three knowledges. Um, so the first statement is consider the three knowledges. Statement number one. Okay. Uh, I'm not even going to write it. Uh, the second statement is the three knowledges don't really exist. Really meaning self-existently. The third point is because they don't exist really as one and they really don't really exist as many. Because Again, because they do not really exist as one or really exist as many. Really meaning self-existently. Important point. Okay? So now to do this logical proof, basically what we've got to do, and I'm not going to go through the connections to make sure they all hold. You can work it out on your own. No, they don't give an example. Um, 
So, so basically, to prove this, the key point here, and this is the proof of one or many, is the last statement. They don't really exist as one, and they don't really exist as many. And what this means is, if you disprove that something is self-existent in the singular, right, and you disprove something is not self-existent in the plural, then it can't be self-existent because that encompasses everything. You know, if you disprove that there is one purple turtle, you disprove that there are ten purple turtles. Okay, so that's that's the idea. So then we have to disprove that um, we have to prove the point that things can't really exist as one or many self-existently. So how does Buddhism do that? Buddhism says, well, if you disprove that everything in existence isn't self-existent, well, then that encompasses one and many as well. So Buddhism comes at it from the other, this, this proof comes at it from the other backwards approach. It says, well, we'll just, we'll just prove that everything in existence is not self-existent. And that'll encompass these two. Okay? A little overkill, but this is the proof. <laughs> so, um, so we have to look at everything in existence, basically. Um, you have all things. And then we start breaking it into categories. Um, you have all things are subdivided into changing and unchanging things. Changing things can be further subdivided into physical things and mental things. And physical things can be further divided into gross physical things and subtle physical things. So I'm going to talk while you write because we don't have a lot of time. So basically we start by saying, okay, um, if something has parts, then they don't, it can't really exist as one object. Something can't be one object and be multiple objects at the same time. So we need to prove that all these things have parts. And if we prove that all these things have parts, then nothing exists as one thing on its own, independently of its parts. Okay? That's the proof. Um, which will then prove the, the original statement. So we start with gross things. Your body, things around you. How do you prove that it has parts? Well, you got fingers, cover one, you know, you still have other fingers, therefore you have parts. That's it. That's the proof. Simple. <laughs> okay? Um, yeah. Yeah. If it has parts, it cannot be one thing. You're proving that something cannot exist as one object, self-existently, from its own side, independently of anything else, meaning parts. It can't be one thing unless it doesn't have any parts. One can't be plural. So we're just proving singular. Okay? Um, so what about subtle things like, say, atoms? You know, take any subtle thing. Uh, can atoms uh, um, not have parts? Oh, atoms have parts. If you have, if you have two atoms side by side, you could say, well, you could subdivide it down to the smallest particle and then there wouldn't be any further parts. Um, would it have a left side and a right side? Would it have a top spin or a bottom spin? Uh, would it have a top or a bottom? If so, then it has parts. Um, if atoms don't have parts, 
then that means they're not ever touching each other because for two things to, have to touch there have to be separate parts to touch so if subtle things don't have parts then they wouldn't be touching and they'd all be one little microscopic subparticle and everything in existence would be one part that never touched anything and didn't have any parts so that's that subtle things have parts um, okay. <laughs> okay you know it makes them fat uh, so we're left with uh, physical and mental things um, mm, do physical things have parts well you know we already talked about that really um, so well we proved gross and subtle so physical is done I'm sorry don't need to repeat it so now we're left with mental things do mental things have parts um, hey, you know having proved that both parts of physical things are disqualified also disqualifies that so do mental things have parts does your mind stream do, does your consciousness have parts yes you have a moment of consciousness which leads to the next moment of consciousness so your consciousness in Buddhism we call it your mind stream your mind streams through time having moments of consciousness those moments of consciousness are the parts of, of mental stuff has parts um, so we've just eliminated all changing things physical and mental things have been disqualified that leaves unchanging things um, what are unchanging things empty space emptiness and I think there's a third one which is what cessations um, do they have parts um, does empty space have parts north south east west yes um, uh, he's saying it's time to go uh, does emptiness have parts yes every existing thing has emptiness this pen has its own emptiness which is independent and unique from this projector's emptiness those are the parts of emptiness multiple emptinesses emptiness has parts so do cessations have parts probably I have to look at my notes um, well cessations this is a little trickier cessations basically a cessa- you'd have to take an example of a cessation you have a cessation for example you could have a cessation of the intellectual belief in self-existence and a cessation of the innate belief in self-existence and those are the parts of a cessation there you have it I won't elaborate <laughs> so um so basically we've covered everything in existence proving that everything in existence has parts what does that mean if you go back to your original proof the proof for one or many we've proven that there is no one thing in existence that can exist without having parts given that we've proven that no one thing can exist without parts no collection of the ones the plural the many can, can also have parts okay so we've just so this is proof of emptiness now you know what does that mean what is that good for what does it do for you in your life um <laughs> you know basically you have to understand what what emptiness how do I say you have to understand how to use emptiness you have to understand that uh oh <laughs> you have to understand that um, lost it oh, I'm sure it was a profound point um <laughs> Emptiness. We're talking about emptiness. You, how it relates to your life. Important point. Um, you have to understand how to use emptiness in your daily life. When someone yells at you, or when someone does harm to you, you have to understand emptiness to the point of being able to use it to not do non-virtue in return. And so, if you understand that the guy yelling at you does exist, but not in the way in which you think, i.e., you think he's 
radiating his identity at you from his side and that you are justified in <laughs> ah. <laughs> and that you are justified in uh, yelling back at him then you know then you're using emptiness to your advantage right so that's the point of emptiness okay um, you've got to be able to stop doing non-virtue and emptiness emptiness is the basis to do that um, if you understand that the guy is there based upon parts causes and your mental conceptualization of him then you can use that to react differently to him when he does harm to you okay that's why you have to understand emptiness things do exist they don't exist in the way in which you think they exist they are empty that's how they exist they are empty of self-existent nature they're empty of radiating something from their side independent of your conceptualization and other factors so that's that's emptiness so quickly to do the last couple of homework questions write out the reasoning called the emptiness of one or many consider the three knowledges we already did this they don't exist truly point two point three because they neither exist truly as one thing nor do they exist truly as many things okay and then there's an example they are for example like the reflection of an image in a mirror they are for example like the reflection of an image in a mirror So this whole idea of things having parts, you know, there's a homework question about uh, if things have parts, why, why, why is it something which can't really exist? If this has parts, why can't it really exist? Really meaning self-existently from its own side. Because I look at it and I see a top, a bottom, a green, a white, a blue, a lettering. I can't see the whole pen. I can't see the back. I can't see the inside. You know, my mind can't even see the left side and the right side simultaneously. All I can do is have my eyes skip around and have my various senses skip around taking in various points of data, various sets of data, okay? I can never take in the whole pen with my senses, all right? My mind takes in the data set and constructs it into the identity of this thing, okay? We do it with pens, we do it with people, we do it with goodness, we do it with badness. You take in a certain amount of data, you mentally construct it into something in your mind and you relate to it as if it's coming from that thing and that it's really self-existently radiating that to you and therefore you're justified in, you know, yelling at it or whatever you're going to do. Um, okay? So that's why if something has parts, it can't really exist. You can never even take in all the parts. You can never perceive all the parts. You can't perceive all the parts individually and you can't perceive it if you're perceiving all the parts. You can't see the penness, the overall penness of this if you're looking at its parts. Your mind can only apprehend one thing at a time. Either it's penness or it's parts. Certain of the parts, and then it constructs it eventually into a penness. You know, your mind does it in a microsecond and, you know, you don't notice it. So that's how you use emptiness. That's the benefit of emptiness. You've got to realize that your mind is so fast that it's taking in sensory data through all your six senses, constructing it into, a, into something, you know, in, in a flash, you think it's out there and you react to it. That's how you use emptiness, okay, in your life. Uh, and that's why if something has parts, it can't really exist, okay? Um, Last point. Um, there's Tibetan here. You know, I'm going to put it up and you could write it or not depending on whether you're motivated. I get to talk while you do it. Um, there's a t uh, commentary, the text of Maitreya. This relates back to Mark's question. Uh, what about tantric teachings? The debater comes and argues that Maitreya, 
basically all of this material that we're doing is, you know, coming from various commentaries. And so to try to refute the points, the debater comes up and says, hey, you can't quote Maitreya because, you know, he didn't write this commentary for that reason. He wrote this commentary for this other reason. And so in this argument, they say, um, you know, Maitreya is a fully enlightened being. Maitreya is a Buddha. And so he, he didn't write this text for this purpose. And so the refutation is, mm, the refutation to that is, is that the, the debater is mixing up the open and secret teachings. And you can't use secret teaching materials and open teaching materials. Okay? This, in the secret teachings, the secret teachings, are, the tantric teachings are based on the open teachings, the sutra teachings. But it's improper to confuse the two. Okay? You have to be kept strictly separate and you can't use texts from the tantras in teaching and explaining the sutras or refuting points, etc. Like that. Okay? Um, just going to say it quickly. Tumong uh, Gilam um, is uh, the way which is shared, meaning the open teachings. And Tumong uh, Mahimpa Lam is the path which is not shared, the way in which is not shared. So those are the two paths. The tantric path, the sutra path, the open and secret teachings. And they shouldn't be mixed and the scriptures and commentaries from them shouldn't be mixed. Okay. Um, Last point on Tantra. Uh, the question says, the 8th century master Dharmakirti in his root text on Buddhist logic says that the two elements must be, two elements must be present for Tantra to work. What are they? What two things must be present for Tantra to work? That relates to these two points. Um, which means uh, the person who... Um, it means the person who speaks the mantra or tantra must be of exceptional spiritual power and the next point not that papo sultram I'm probably saying that more or less correctly maybe less um, means the person who practices the tantra must be someone who leads a very pure ethical life um, so these are the two elements that have to be present for tantra to work the people teaching it has to be very pure and have great spiritual power the person practicing it uh, has to be very pure okay and that is that. Hmm? The first point? The, fir- the one's the teacher and one's the student. The first one is the teacher. The person who speaks it must have spiritual power. Mm-hmm. Let me give it. Um, the person who speaks the tantra must be of exceptional spiritual power. The person who receives it and practices it must be a very pure ethical life morality. Okay? Okay. Sorry we went late. It's hard to gauge it. First time around. Um, should do a dedication quickly, eh? Hmm? Oh, yeah.
So this concludes course number two on refuge. Next class, we start meditation. Thank you.